If you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 29 this morning. If you're without a copy of God's Word, you can find our sermon text on page 890 of the Pew Bible there in front of you. Once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? God's Word inspired for our eternal good here in John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this word. I thank you for the time we have to spend together over it and pray that your spirit would come now, fill each one of us, that we might understand it fully and embrace it for eternal life. Use me now to set before this people not my own words, but the words of the Son of Man himself, for in them do we find life. We ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last time we were together, we got another glimpse of Jesus' glory as the only Son of God. Based on what he did, and what he said, we encountered Jesus through the Word of God and saw that he is truly glorious. Jesus had encountered a man who had been lame for 38 years, and he healed him with a word. Get up, Jesus said. Take up your bed and walk. John then tells us in verse 9, 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Just like the other miracles in the Gospel of John, the healing of the lame man was meant to point the people to Jesus' identity and mission. The miracles of Jesus were never ends in themselves, but always the manifestation of Jesus' glory observed in his person and his mission. The miracles Jesus performed and the way he talked about those miracles were always God's way of saying to the world, this is who my son is and this is why he has come. So the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath served the same purpose. The healing of the lame man on the Sabbath revealed Jesus' mission in that God sent him into the world to bring us eternal rest from sickness and sin. And it reveals Jesus' person in that Jesus himself was equal with God. That's what the healing on the Sabbath and then the controversy over his healing on the Sabbath displayed about Jesus' glory in verses 1 to 18. Jesus has come to restore our restful fellowship with God which was broken at the rebellion in the garden. That's his mission. And Jesus himself is God. That's his person. And the point of it all is believe this about him and you will have eternal life. That's the purpose of why John has written these things. We've seen it again and again. I keep bringing it to your attention because it's so crucial for understanding the purpose of this gospel in verse chapter 20 verse 31 these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name but not everyone believes Jesus not everyone embraces his person and mission in fact many of his own people the Jews were seeking to kill him that's where we left off in verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So not only do we disapprove of the way your mission is playing itself out here on the Sabbath, Jesus, but we also think you're a blasphemer by calling God your own father. And Jesus' words in our, passage, in our passage today answer their opposition to his person and mission. And in so doing, provide an answer to the whole world's opposition to his person and mission. Including the three Mormon girls who stopped by my house a few weeks ago, denying that Jesus was one with the Father including the Islamic associations of Fort Worth and Tarrant County, who see Jesus as no more than a prophet, including the neighbors you've spoken with who refuse to bow their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus' words clarify all the more that the Jews' accusations of blasphemy, not to mention their desires to kill him, are misguided and rebellious. It's not wrong for Jesus to call God his own father, nor is Jesus wrong for making himself equal with God, because that is who he is. 
He is the eternal Son of God, of one substance with His Father, always doing His Father's work, and who has appeared in the flesh to complete it for our eternal salvation. That's His message in verses 19 to 29. Jesus shows the Jews His identity with God and His work as God, and we see this unfolding in about three ways. First, Jesus' sonship reveals that Jesus' work is God's work. Jesus' sonship, that is his relationship with his Father, reveals that Jesus' work is God's work. The Jews had a major, major problem with what Jesus said back in verse 17, if you look there with me, in response to their bitterness over him healing a man on the Sabbath. He says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And they interpreted that to mean that Jesus was making himself equal with God. And so Jesus fleshes out his point a bit further for them in verse 19, lest there be any misunderstanding. Meaning, let's be sure the offense taken is on the right grounds. These Jews have read their Bibles. They know Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They know from the first two commandments that they must not have or worship any gods other than Yahweh. Only Yahweh is the creator and sole sovereign ruler over all things. There is but one God in the universe. By making himself equal with God, is Jesus then undermining the, the monotheism of the entire Bible? By saying, my father is working till now and I am working, is it Jesus' point to say that there is more than one God? Verses 19 and 20 clarify that's not the case at all. You've only heard Jesus rightly if you understand him to be saying that the one and only God affirmed throughout the Bible accommodates father relating to son. And spirit, we'll get there later. The only the one and only God affirmed throughout the entire Bible accommodates father relating to son. If you hold to that, you've heard Jesus rightly. That is to say, the relationship of Jesus as son to his father is integral, fundamental, important, essential, necessary, all the other important words you can think about to get you to pay attention to what I'm about to say the relationship of Jesus as son to his father is integral to who the one true God is. So if you understand Jesus to be making himself equal with God, verse 18, let's be sure you understand that he's not saying he's a second God alongside his father, but that he is the son who relates to his father within the one Godhead. While being a distinct person from the Father within the Godhead, Jesus still shares the divine essence with the Father, just as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God, and the 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is how that relationship plays out as God works for your redemption. Read it with me in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, it's, that is, on His own initiative, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So just because He's equal with God doesn't mean that Jesus does whatever He wants, like healing a man whenever He wants, like healing a man on the Sabbath, as if He's somehow independent from, from another who is God, namely His Father. Rather, His equality with God as Son means He can only do what He sees the Father doing. It is part of His person, part of who He is as Son to do what His Father does. And He doesn't mean that in a sense of mere imitation of His Father. Like when we think of an earthly son doing what his earthly daddy has shown him. The relationship between a divine father and divine son totally transcends human relationships since the son's knowledge of the father's will is always immediate and infinitely exhaustive and completely understood and flawlessly executed. Jesus is making a point about how His divine nature and identity as Son always and forever functions in submission to His Father's will. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now that alone would imply that Jesus is God, since only a person who is divine would be able to do whatever God does. But Jesus goes on to answer how he knows what the Father is doing to begin with. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus is pressing the issue of his divinity even further by saying that he shares a love relationship with the Father unlike anyone else. This is more than God showing a prophet a few things about his will. This is Jesus sharing in the eternal, uncreated love and immediate self-disclosure of the Godhead. God's love and affection for His Son is eternal. It never had a beginning because the Son never had a beginning. His love for us had a beginning when, we, when He chose to love us, rebellious as we are. Not so with His Son. His Son has been the eternal object of His affections because everything about His Son has forever been infinitely lovely, infinitely holy, and infinitely wonderful. And from within, 
that eternal, uncreated love relationship flows the immediate self-disclosure of the Father's will to the Son and the perfect execution of that will by the Son infinitely. That's true in creation. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3. The Word became flesh. I mean, uh, the Word was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him. And we see that it is true also in redemption. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The ministry of Jesus of Nazareth is the invisible God revealed in human flesh for our eternal salvation. When we look at Jesus' works, like the miracle at Cana, or the cleansing of the temple, or the pursuit of a Samaritan woman, or the healing of a lame man, we are looking at God's work. Not just in the sense that Jesus is God's agent who carries out God's work, but in the sense that He works as God Himself. When we look at Jesus' works, we're looking at God's work. And later, when we come to the cross where Jesus will suffer in our place and die for our sins under the eternal wrath of His Father, we're looking again at God's work. We are looking at the extent to which the entire Godhead is willing to love sinful people. The Father sending, the Son coming, and the Spirit strengthening. The Father giving up, the Son laying down His life, and the Spirit raising Him from the dead. That means your salvation, brothers and sisters, flows out of the eternal love relationship between the Father and the Son in the Godhead and finds its completion in the unswerving, perfect obedience of the Son to His Father unto death on a cross and victory over the grave. Nothing lacking in the Father's love for you through the Son. No miscommunications between the Father and the Son in planning and executing your deliverance. Not one thing did the Son overlook when He took on your sins in His death. There are no oopsie-daisies between the Father and the Son with your eternal life even now. We must preach this to ourselves when the days of doubt attack our soul and our obedience to God seems so fickle and our faith seems so small. You have on your side a divine Father who works for your redemption and a divine Son who does whatever the Father does, everything being achieved perfectly all the time for your eternal good. The Father and Son are one in purpose in obtaining our salvation, meaning that none of the Son's work on our behalf is ever lacking in what we need in order to obtain fellowship with God. We were talking about this at the uh, elders' meeting on Thursday, and, and I just, I've been reading through Hebrews. So I'm, at the same time, I'm reading through these things and just dwelling on Jesus' priestly intercession for us even now at the right hand of the Father. And just thinking that if Jesus has this kind of knowledge of His Father's will, 
That means he's always praying the Father's will for us perfectly at all times, even when we're not. You ever have mornings like that? I'm just throwing your hands up in the air. Why don't I even keep praying? We can look to Christ who's praying for us perfectly in accordance with His Father's will because the Father loves the Son and discloses all things to Him. And not only that, He's executing it perfectly on our behalf. All the time. And not only that, the Father is listening to the Son and hearing His will being prayed and answering the Son. He's not rejecting the Son's prayers. He's answering them for us. And we can be hopeful that everything Jesus prays for us will be answered by the Father perfectly. Jesus' relationship with His Father reveals that Jesus' work is God's work. We can take great comfort and assurance in that. Secondly, Jesus' authority reveals that Jesus' honor is God's honor. Jesus' authority reveals that Jesus' honor is God's honor. The second half of verse 20 tells us that the Father will show His Son greater works than the works the Jews had just seen Jesus perform, like the healing of the lame man and the other things He was apparently doing on the Sabbath. Verse 16 says, The Father will show the Son greater things than these so that the Jews would marvel. Then he tells us what he means by these greater things in verses 21 to 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So what are the greater things that the Father discloses to the Son and that the Son is then to perform? We just saw two of them. Jesus gives life. And Jesus executes final judgment. And they're both related to each other. If you have authority and power to give life, then that means you also have authority and power to judge the dead as well. Only God possesses the authority and power to raise and judge the dead in the Old Testament. Both of these belong exclusively to God. It, it was Yahweh who in the beginning breathed into a man's nostrils giving him the breath of life. And it would be Yahweh who in the end would reveal himself as Lord of all by opening the graves and giving life to his people. Moreover, it is the Lord God who sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people's with uprightness. The remnant in Israel would often sing this from Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. 
And knowing this, Jesus still, rather forthrightly, is saying the authority to give life and judge the dead belonged to him. He even repeats it in verses 26 to 27 to make his, making his assertions even more pointed. Verse 26, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he's not talking about gaining life as a human being in his incarnation. Jesus just declared that he's self-existent like the Father. His having life in himself never had a beginning, even though it's granted to him by the Father. Figure that one out. His having life in himself never had a beginning, and it's granted to him by the Father. The Son has life in himself. Verse 27, the Father has given... The Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. That's a title from the vision of Daniel 7.13 where we see a divine figure, one like, the son, like a Son of Man, it says, coming with the clouds of heaven and approaching the Ancient of Days, Yahweh Himself, in the courtroom of heaven. And Daniel 7.14 says that to this divine Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. To say that the Ancient of Days has given you authority to ex execute judgment is absolutely ludicrous. Unless you're truly the divine Son of God. The Father has entrusted final judgment to Jesus altogether. Exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 with the great white throne when earth and sky flee away from the presence of Jesus who sits on the throne to judge the dead both great and small. That's a glimpse of Jesus' authority. The purpose of him having such authority is spelled out then in verse 23, namely that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here's the connection. Jesus' authority to raise and judge the dead means that he's worthy of the same honor that belongs to God himself. That doesn't mean that by receiving honor... Jesus somehow steals honor from his Father. It means that honoring the Son is what honors the Father. Well, maybe we put it in the words of Paul from Philippians 2 like this. God the Father has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's honoring the Son. To the glory of God the Father. That's honoring the Father. Jesus' words to the Jews are just as offensive today in our pluralistic culture full of people who simply want the claims of their religion to coexist. You've seen the bumper sticker? Coexist with the claims of Christ. Jesus' point of application 
at the end of verse 23 is really relevant, not only for your own soul finding eternal life, but also for everyone still needing to find life in Him. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That's a really solid foundation for your feet, brothers and sisters going on mission Utah. When your Mormon neighbors are attempting to skirt the issues about Jesus or other skilled Mormon apologists are sinking you in philosophical objections to the Trinity or you've, never, you've just never encountered people interpreting the Bible differently than Christians, you're just all confused, this is a great rock for your feet. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And he's clear what kind of honor he's talking about. It's the esteeming of Jesus as God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son like that does not honor the Father who sent him. That's a safe place of discernment when you're bringing the gospel into the lives of other people. Always coming back to the question and bringing them back to the question, is what they're saying honoring Jesus as God? If it doesn't, they do not honor God. No matter how many times they say God in their sentences and no matter what their religious background may be. Jesus is worthy of our worship and adoration and praise because he has authority to give life and execute final judgment. He's not a mere man for us to sit back and toy with what we do and don't like about him. We bow at his feet or we perish. C.S. Lewis got it right in his book, Mere Christianity, when he wrote, how to, wrote of how foolish it is when people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says... That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis goes on. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. We honor Jesus as God or we perish. And that actually leads us right into the third way of Jesus. The third way Jesus reveals his divine nature and identity with God, namely Jesus. Jesus' word gives eternal life to dead people even before judgment day. Jesus' word gives eternal life to people even before judgment day. 
If our first and second points reveal that Jesus is God's divine Son who completes God's work with total authority and all power, then it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus has the ability to clear us from eternal condemnation and make us sharers in the, in the life of the age to come now. That's stated very plainly in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Stop there for a minute. Do you see how he equated, equated those two things? Whoever hears my word, that is, he hears it in a saving sense. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father. He's equating those two things. Those two things are equivalent. Hearing Jesus' word is the same thing as hearing God's word. Whoever does that has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's the situation, apart from Christ. Because of our sin against God, our ungrateful hearts, our complaining our lustful thoughts, our bending of the truth, our divisive tongues, our shaking of our fists at God. Because of our sin, we are spiritually dead to life with God, and the only thing that awaits us is eternal death under God's wrath on the last day. Verses 28 and 29 promise that a day is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear Jesus' voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. God will raise all of us on the last day and judge us according to our works. That doesn't mean salvation is by works. It means that our works will confirm on the last day whether we enjoyed salvation by faith before the last day. For the believer in Christ, his works will confirm that he was saved by grace. He came to the light that it would be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Chapter 3, verse 21. They are good works insofar as they bear witness to Christ living within a person by faith. These people will rise to the resurrection of life. That means they will enjoy fellowship with God in the age to come. For those who rejected Christ, their works will confirm that they never knew God. They hated the light and did not come to the light lest their works should be exposed for what they really are, evil works. Chapter 3, verse 20. Instead of their works serving to vindicate them on the last day as belonging to Christ, these people's works will only condemn them. They will rise to the resurrection of judgment, which Revelation 20.14 calls the second death being thrown into the lake of fire. That means that were you to ignore Jesus' voice, were you to continue un in unbelief, treasuring your sin more than treasuring God in Christ, your entire life, all your labors and investments and relationships and hobbies and noble goals would only amount to a waiting room for condemnation. In other words, apart from a relationship with Christ, your life is characterized by death. 
regardless of how many laughs you have in it. Death looms over you and will consume you on the last day with eternal torment. But this is why God sent His Son into the world. Jesus came that you might escape that death now. That's what He says in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. It is now here when the, death, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about bodies rising from the dead in verse 25. He is talking about bodies rising from the dead in verse 28. But in verse 25, he's saying that the same authority and power that's in his voice to raise dead bodies on the last day is the same authority and power in his voice today to give spiritual life to people now, before the last day. How can he do that? Because He is God who's come in the flesh to bring us the life we've always needed with God. The hour is coming and is now here. We've seen this repeatedly. Jesus talking about His hour throughout the Gospel of John. His cross is just over the horizon where He will remove the sting of death forever which is sin. His resurrection will follow, where He will conquer the grave and vindicate all who give themselves to Jesus by faith. By saying an hour is coming and is now here, Jesus is telling us that we need not and better not wait for the resurrection. He's already on His way to the cross to die for the sins of the world, rise from the dead, and usher in the new age of the Spirit when Christ gathers people from all nations for eternal life. What he will achieve in his mission to the cross is so sure, so certain that it's, it's as good as done. Here's the deal. Verses 28 and 29 are talking about Jesus raising the dead on the last day unto judgment, unto either a resurrection of life or resurrection of judgment. And in the resurrection of judgment, God will pour out all of His wrath on those who are not in Christ. And that wrath will be infinite and everlasting and eternal. And Jesus is saying that in His coming into the world to die for sinners, He has taken that infinite judgment of God and brought it to the cross and absorbed it all for all who would place their faith in Christ. None left, such that you have eternal life now and forevermore. You won't get to Judgment Day and, and, God, and hear God say, Oops, I forgot some wrath. Here's some more. Because it's all been absorbed back here in history on the cross of Christ. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to these people. That if you believe my word, you will have life now. It's available now, today. An hour is coming and is now here in the person of Jesus when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Meaning that in, the hearing, in hearing the voice of God's Son and believing the Father, 
has sent him for our salvation, we experience the life of the age to come now. We don't experience that life in its fullness, of course, with our new bodies in a new world with no temptation or evil desires present. That's coming with the resurrection of life. But what we do experience now is a life acquitted of all my guilt before God. A life of permanent safety from God's wrath since we know all of it is absorbed in the cross. A life that's freed from the powerful grip of sin and now empowered by grace. A life filled with fellowship with God and His people who bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A life of daily being transformed into the perfect image of Christ and a patient, loving, compassionate Father disciplining us as He fights for our blamelessness on the last day. That's what Jesus means by passing from death to life. Out of death, separating us from God and into the life of fellowship with God. For those of you hearing his voice for the first time, cast yourself upon Jesus that you might pass from death to life. Believe that the Father has sent his Son to die for your sins and to rise again for your life and you will be saved from the resurrection of judgment making the rest of your days not a waiting room for condemnation, but a dressing room that will give way to a wedding feast. Any one of us members, the elders will be here at the front after the service, would love to listen, with, listen to you and walk with you until you know this life in Christ. For those of you who know His voice already, you too cast yourself upon Jesus again and again that you might continue to know the life He offers until He comes again. We even have an opportunity to do that this morning through the Lord's Supper. So take full advantage of this time not merely to remember your sins but to remember the only Son from the Father who came and died for your sin and who's worthy of all your worship. And then eat and drink, not full of fear, but full of gladness of heart for the Father and Son working perfectly for your eternal life and never failing until He brings you home face to face with the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would grant faith in these next few moments as we come to the Lord's table. That we may drink in a way that discerns all that you have done for us in the work of your Son, Jesus. I ask that you would move our hearts to adoration, worship, praise and celebration as we eat the bread and drink from the cup. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.